can make us sing, what can make us praise, even through our pain, shout your name. Our God sings. And when the world is falling apart, there's a peace down deep in our hearts. Our God sings.
we're doing this morning? Why don't you guys get up on your feet, find somebody, tell them good morning. So much more than just a king You are more than everything So much more than a perfect day You are more than I can say And my words just fail me where I think of where I might have been If you had not changed my way You are more than I can say Beautiful as the sunset over the ocean, and as high as the trees growing up on the mountain, and as bright as the sun shining on a summer afternoon, as long as the memory lingers from those who live too soon. There's no greater love than this For our lives He gave His And He took our sin and shame And He washed them all away As beautiful as the sunset Over the ocean as high as the trees growing up on the mountain, and as bright as the sun shining on a summer afternoon, and as long as the memory lingers from those who left too soon, Good morning. 
<laughs> the clapping sounded like a bad bar band. Three people. Hey, we'll be back in 15 minutes after our break. Thanks for coming. <laughs> I'm sorry. How do I know that from movies? Okay. It is. Uh, it's, you sound so much better than that, too. Okay. I'm going to try to recover from this. Good morning. It was all we. Yeah, I could do. <laughs> no. no, Rocky Mountain High. You sound like John Denver when you get up there. No, I'm telling you he does, only the non-high John Denver, but that's a different discussion as well. If you're visiting Carpenter's Way, I am just a visiting pastor. Our, our real pastor is not here this morning. Good morning. It is so good to see you this morning. This is Passion Week, and uh, this is the week when, when we get to just, man, realize how good God has been to us. Um, in all conversation this week, I want you to remember that it was while you were yet a sinner that Christ died for you. While you were yet a sinner. While, while you were offending Him, while you didn't care about Him, while you were rejecting Him, that's when He loved. He loves you. He died for you as you were, and He rose again. And just like with Peter, He doesn't go, you shouldn't have been saved. He says, I'm so glad I saved you. And I hope, I hope this week is a week of joy for you. Um, I hope it's a week of hope. We would like to help in that. Uh, this Friday, we'll have a Good Friday service at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and it will be 3 to 3.30, so that those of you who don't get off work can kind of sneak away, and, and uh, if you guilt your boss into it, like, I'm really seriously walking with God, and would you allow me 30 minutes to worship him, or you're going to go to hell, stuff like that, they'll let you off, I'm pretty sure. But if, if you can sneak away from 30 minutes, basically what we do is we, we sing a few hymns, we look at some scripture, and then we have communion. And, uh, and then you can get back to work or with your family or whatever. But it really sets off this weekend um, and uh, a, a celebration. And then Sunday morning, we're going to be back here at 930, and we encourage you to come early. Usually this room is full on Easter, and uh, we, we just want you to come back and celebrate the resurrection of our Lord with us. Uh, this is, again, our holiday, and this is when we as the children of God celebrate God. And we're going to invite those who, who may not know him. Uh, to, to watch us celebrate. That's what we do, and uh, we offer them the same hope that God has given us. So next Sunday is going to be a great service. It's, uh, it's a little over an hour long. We don't have Bible study after, and the reason for that is we want you to bring family and friends and then take them to lunch. Um, uh, people, people can debate our theology. They can debate doctrine. They can even wrestle over what interpretations of Scripture. But I'll tell you what they can't debate, and that is a personal transformation as a result of the Holy Spirit. So we need to probably elevate just a little bit more our personal walk with God and our testimony. And that's why we do uh, Resurrection Sunday the way we do, because we want you to bring folks uh, to celebrate this wonderful holiday and then just be around them. Um, you have the Holy Spirit in you, child of God. You have the Holy Spirit, and He affects people through you. And the fruit of the Spirit does affect folks. This is a term, uh, just the whole world's in turmoil. And our country's politically in turmoil, but there is one person who is not in turmoil, and that is a child of God who has surrendered his life to the control of the Holy Spirit. There is peace, and that is affecting folks. So encourage you to, uh, to be with us next week and to invite folks. And uh, um, uh, this morning our kids, our preschool and children's uh, ministry during the 11 o'clock Bible hour are going to talk a lot about Palm Sunday. And, and I'm going to bring a Palm Sunday message out of James this morning, and it's just going to be a good time. So uh, would you take your worship guide? There are a few things I want to highlight in here uh, for you, please. Uh, first of all, you'll notice middle top, um, Tori Alverson, who is our missionary with Africa Inland Missions to Madagascar, uh, is in the fall. She shared with us Wednesday night, and if you did not get to be a part of our mission sharing evening, it was fantastic. 
And uh, there are CDs available if you're interested, or we'll put it on the archives on the Internet if you'd like to listen. But it was really a fantastic night. Uh, Tori is going to be uh, going off to finish her education in October. But before she goes back, each Wednesday night uh, at 5.30, she's going to lead a group in uh, a time of prayer for the nations and specifically the persecuted church across the globe. Um, people who keep track of such things uh, say that, the, that since 2000, more Christians have been persecuted than ever before in the history of the church in all the years combined. Uh, it has been called genocide, what's going on in the Middle East against Christians. And the Lord tells us to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters. And uh, we appreciate Tori's leadership in this. And uh, so we would encourage you to come out uh, Wednesdays, 5.30. And then we have Bible study at 6.30, you remember. Adults have Bible study in here. And then we got students and children going on at the same time. And uh, if you can't make it every week, just come out when you can. I know that it would be encouragement to her. But we do need to be praying for the persecuted church. So that information is in there. You see the resurrection weekend uh, schedule as, as well. One other thing that I want to highlight this morning is uh, that last week, last Sunday evening, Robert Grimes began um, our Sunday, a Sunday even, evening Bible study um, based upon Ray Vanderlaan's series, So the World May Know. And basically, there's usually a 15 or 20-minute video of in the Middle East or, or in, the, in the Promised Land, as well as where the churches were birthed in Turkey. And then, um, and then you have a conversation about it. Where was this in Scripture? And it is phenomenal if you've never seen it. Um, <clears throat> he'd love for you to come out each week. However, you can jump in one week and jump out the next. And uh, he is this evening's uh, video is going to be on uh, Palm Sunday or, or Passion Week. Um, and that area, so I would encourage, we would encourage you to come out for that if you're available at 5.30, um, and uh, you will certainly enjoy that. There was a good group last weekend, but, man, that's a, that's a wonderful time, and NASCAR's over at that hour, so you should be free. Um, just kidding. There's like eight NASCAR fans in this church. I've heard from all of you. All right, that, that does it for that. I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward at this time for our offering. Um, just, just to say to those of you who are here visiting with us, thanks for being with us. If you're watching on Internet, you're gl we're glad you're logging in and watching. We hope that we're an encouragement to you. Uh, we just want to encourage you if, you, if this is not your home church, we ask you not to give. Uh, this is for those who attend here regularly. It's our commitment to world missions and local missions and then what God's doing here at Carpenter's Way. We do not want you distracted by money. We want you to fall in love with Jesus Christ, uh, having been with us this morning. So uh, let me pray and commit our time to the Lord, and then we'll, we'll sing and then we'll get back into the Word. Father, we thank you for this, for this morning, and um, thank you for this week that we can set time aside on, uh, as, a, as a nation, as a world, to celebrate your birth. And even though um, this is not on the calendar, uh, annual calendar of when you were actually crucified, um, we, we thank you for the time that we set aside to celebrate it this time of year where we can focus on that. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you for being our Passover lamb. I want to thank you in light of this morning. And what we're going to learn together from the scriptures, I actually want to thank you for not giving us everything we want. I thank you for taking care of our needs and not our wants. And uh, too, so often we come to you and we ask you to take care of the things that we were scared about or, or we feel uh, are the, is the right thing for the world and for our lives. And yet, God, you translate that into what is your plan for the world and for our lives. And we, we thank you that you're God that you're not our grandfather, that you're not just a gift giver, but you are the ultimate gift giver who gives us not just what we, we desire, but you give us what is best for us. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for salvation. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for saving people like us before we even bowed the knee to you. Uh, you didn't wait to see if we'd be good, and you didn't wait to see if we would be smart or attractive. 
You simply, while we were sinners, you died for us. And you, Scripture tells us that those of us who are your kids, we were chosen before the foundation of the world, and, and in your infinite wisdom and mercy and grace, you have called us to, your, to yourself, and we thank you for that. And Lord, it's our prayer uh, this morning that the words of the writers of the songs and, and, and the preacher this morning would fade away and that the words of God would endure forever. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for being with us this morning. We thank you, Daddy, for sending him. We thank you for Jesus Christ who sits at your right hand and, and talks to you about us. We thank you that we are your kids and not forgotten. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes I'm weak, sometimes I fall in my wandering, but through it all, there's just one thing more precious than the air I breathe. Grace, amazing grace, unfailing. That sings my soul and grace, unending grace, unrelenting grace that won't let go. You took our sin, you took our stain, you took our guilt. Eternal crown, the endless song. How sweet the sound of grace, amazing grace, unfailing grace that saves my soul. Oh, grace, unending grace, unrelenting grace that. Deeper than I've had. 
And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them, and and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. You give life, you are love, you bring light to the darkness, you give hope, you restore every heart that is broken, and great are you, Lord, it's your breath. So we pour out our praise. 
together with every head bowed and every eye closed I, I would ask you this morning would you just pray that the Holy Spirit would show us his truth this morning in this text and just where you're at in your heart would you just talk to God about that burden that thing that's got you distracted in life that's robbing your joy if there is such a thing Tell him he, you want him to talk to you about that thing this morning that sets you free from the burden. Now I'd ask you to pray for those around you that God would help them hear his truth. Now will you pray for me that I wouldn't distract with my silliness or humanity, but that God would speak through me because I believe he has something really special for us today. Lord, you've heard the prayers of your children and you promised to listen to us. And if it be your will, Father, this morning, we ask that you change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to jump right into our text this morning, James 1, and we'll start at verse 1 and read through 18. This letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. Greetings. I want to pause there for a second. Uh, because I, I, I want to make sure that you understand this morning, whether you're watching on the Internet or you're in this room, this letter is written to believers. It's written to believers. 
And there are clearly some instructions in this uh, letter about living, about walking with him. And all of that is written to his children. And there's a lot of misunderstanding out there in the world among those who are not his kids over what God expects of you. And I want to start this morning by being very, very clear. All God expects of you is to believe in him. He's not asking you to become moral. He's not asking you to change, to change your politics. He's not asking for you to even like yourself. He is telling you, I will remove your sin if you call on my name and believe in me. If you put your trust, if you don't want to die in your sin and you want to, and, and you want to be relieved of that fear, you come to me. But once we're saved, he begins to transform from the inside out. This is not a salvation you attain by being religious or good enough. This is a salvation that comes to you where you are because God not only loves you, He likes you and then transforms you from the inside out by His work and the Holy Spirit who lives in you. And this book is confusing to a lot of people, the book of James, because people keep thinking, oh, that's what God expects of His children, and if you don't live up to that, you're not saved. Well, that's just bad doctrine. It's just bad interpretation of this letter because 11 times in this letter, besides the one I just already read, written to believers, this letter says over and over to brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters, children of God. He keeps enforcing in five chapters, he keeps reiterating who he's writing to. And as we study through this, you need to understand that this letter is written to grow God's kids up, not make unsaved kids saved. That's not its intention. Its intention is to help Jews who are scattered throughout the world, who are going through very difficult times, see some blind spots. So I wanted to begin with that, and I want to tell you one thing. If you are here this morning or watching, and you do not, and, and you do not know that if you died today, you would go to be with God, I beg of you to just call on Him. Just tell Him that's your fear. Tell Him you believe He's the only one who can save you and accept His gift of forgiveness. That is all you have to do. Scripture says all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Not all who call upon the name and are baptized or who join a church. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's Romans 10, 13. And and you know what? Carpenter's Way does not exist to grow Carpenter's Way. We exist to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ and encourage each other so that when we're out there, we can keep telling people what was read on the screen this morning, and that is God is not holding your sin against you. He forgives you. He loves you. He wants a relationship with you, and the only thing keeping that from happening is you and your pride. Come to him. Pride is a lousy reason to go to hell. It is a lousy reason. Come to him. Having said that, verse 2, Dear brothers and sisters, when trouble of any kind comes your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God, and He'll give it to you. He won't rebuke you for asking, but when you ask Him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person with a divided loyalty is unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people, that's people with divided loyalty between God and the world. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. Believers who are poor, this is today's text, should have something to boast about, for God has honored them. And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. 
They will fade away like a little flower in the field. The hot sun rises and the grass withers. The little flower drops and falls and its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all of their achievements. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive a crown of life that that God has promised to those who love him. Verse 13. And remember, when you're being tempted, don't say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. When whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from, the, from God our Father, who created all the lights in heaven. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us His true word. And we, out of all creation, become His prized possessions. Yep, after all of these weeks, we're still in James. You thought there's five chapters and it would take us five weeks. It'll probably take us five years, but we will learn a lot. It won't take us five years, but we will learn a lot from this. At first glance, and in many Bible studies on this particular text and the, and the whole letter of James, uh, but especially the verses I just read, it would, uh, it's often said that the application of this is have joy in trouble or pray for wisdom when God, uh, from God when you need it or be content when you're poor or God doesn't like those with money. I've heard that. The godly, uh, the godly rich need to remember that God doesn't like cocky people. That's an application that's often taught out of this text. Uh, others teach that God gives good gifts, Satan gives bad. And yet others, even others, say God doesn't tempt us, only Satan does. These are just a few of what I would say are accurate, accurate applications of this text or lessons from the text. But actually, this week's text is actually the end of, of what I just read. That, that end section about being wealthy versus poor. That, that having your perspective in another place than your wealth or the wealth of others. Or, or, or when you see temptation, how you perceive it in your life and what's causing it. Uh, lots of great applications and instructions from these verses. Having said that, part of the reason that so many Christians, including Martin Luther, struggle with this book, because what they do, instead of, Instead of taking this book as a whole, they break it down like Proverbs into small segments of instructions. And you take one instructions and you teach it, and there's a new application every week. Okay, this week I've got to control my tongue. This week I can't say, I can't make a promise, which is taught in this book. This week I need to not say, I want to go to A&M University. I have to say, if God wills it. Lots of little applications, and that's often what is ta- uh, taught. But the problem we're here is that you are not actually being taught in this book to work at being joyful or work at learning how to pray better or to work harder at being content in your poverty or, or, or not looking down on those who are poor. I'm not saying that these applications in and of themselves are bad. What I am saying is that this kind of interpretation of this letter is why we get so messed up when we look and so many people ignore this letter. It's the very reason why I went from Romans into James, because this letter gives great life encouragement to the believer. When we tear this letter apart into individual tiny pieces, we only see James' instructions as little points along the way, but there is an overriding principle and point this letter teaches. There is one principle 
that all of these instructions grow out of. One blind spot that James has, and he's concerned about the Jews that are struggling throughout the world. There's a blind spot in their spiritual lives, and each of these instructions in this letter actually point down back to that blind, uh, blind spot. And those, those instructions are actually evidences for a spiritual blindness. Actually, it points to Palm Sunday because it's the same spiritual blindness they struggled with five days after Jesus presents himself as their king. More on that in a few minutes. But I want you to follow me here because I'm going to walk you through this text. Last week we looked at these verses, which I believe are the key to understanding James' concern for his believers. James 1, 6 through 8. Be sure that your faith is in God alone. That line, it's one of those lines we read over. It's one of those lines we look at and we kind of smooth by, okay, yeah, it's got to be in God alone. Do not waver. For a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as the wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Things like peace, joy. They shouldn't expect it because you have a divided loyalty. Verse 8, their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. This is not the only place that in James in this letter that he talks about or describes his concern that his readers may have a divided loyalty between God and the world. In fact, in chapter 1, verses 22 to 24, he said, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and, and don't obey it, it's like gl glancing at your face in the mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. Or in James 2, 17 to 20, he says, faith by itself isn't enough unless it, what's that word? Produces. It's not that your works manufacture faith, but your faith, real faith, real God-given faith, real life, an eternal life transforming faith, accomplishes stuff, not by your personal self-will, which, by the way, let me just put a side note. I believe that the church today has, has moved into a period of, of a kind of psychological self-help with a fish on its bumper. We teach you five steps to being a godly man. It has nothing to do with God. It's all self-empowered. But this actually says, unless it produces this faith that we live, produces good deeds, it's dead and useless. Now, someone may argue some people have faith and others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? Now, forget the word good deeds. In modern Christendom, that sounds like salvation talk. But what he's saying is, if your faith produces nothing, let me show you my faith, and it produces a ton of stuff in my life. I mean, that's consistent with New Testament teaching where Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. If this is real, and you and I should ask every day if it's real, don't be stupid. If this is real, it's got to affect us or it's not real. So he goes on to say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith for you believe that there's one God. Good for you. Good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in fear. How foolish. Can't you see that faith, uh, faith without good deeds is useless? I wrote a note to myself in my, in my Bible this week, faux faith, F-A-U-X. Is that how it's spelled? I did not know that word until I started shopping with my wife. Faux means fake. It may look like fur, but if it's falks, it's fake. It ain't fur. And the truth is that Paul is, or Paul, <laughs> James, is concerned about the faux faith of these Jews scattered throughout the world. Why is he concerned about that? Because some are saying, 
hey, I believe God so I don't have to do anything. And he's saying, I'm not telling you to do anything, but if your faith doesn't produce something, then it's faux. James 2.26, just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. James 3.13, if you are wise and understand God's way, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. James 4.1, what is causing the quarrels and fight among you? Notice the word causing. What is bringing it out? What's causing the quarrels? Don't they come from an outgrowth of? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? James 4, 3 and 4, even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are wrong. You want only what, give, what will give you pleasure. You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you the enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. James 4, 7 through 9, so humble yourselves. This is the application of the whole letter. So humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Uh-oh. Same thing he says in the first chapter. He begins his letter with a statement, and he ends his letter with a statement, which is how you write letters. When you write your kids' letters at college, and you're writing it for one reason, don't keep using my credit card. You start it with, Dear Zach, I hope all is well. I've noticed that you've got a beautiful brand new coat on. We bought you a coat six months ago before you left for college. I'm sure that coat is warmer, but you didn't need a, few co a new coat. So please understand that you must be wise with your money. And right in the middle, you're right. Get rid of my credit card. You're using it wrong. That's the point. But if you're a good writer letter, you don't say, Dear Zach, stop using my credit card, Mark, or Dad. You, you love these people. You're trying to help them change the way they think. I can get Zach to stop writing credit, using my credit card by canceling that card. But if I want to teach him how to be a wise man with money, I talk about money. That's how this letter is written. Two believers, four believers who are blind. And he doesn't get to his point in every application. Those applications, in my humble opinion, are simply pointing out that they have a blind spot. And what is that blind spot? Their loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. He will do that lifting up. Wash your hands. Purify your heart, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. I want to propose to you this morning that this letter is not really a letter that teaches you how to live within your income or how to have joy in trouble or how to control your tongue. Or any of all the well-meaning behavior or emotional applications often taken out of this text. These issues that James are addressing are kind of like the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament. What was the purpose of the Ten Commandments? Can anybody tell me? Were they instructions for living? Good for you. Those of you who think that they are didn't answer. The answer is no. It tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 19, that the purpose of the law, the purpose of those commands is to do what? to show us we weren't measuring up, to show us our need for free redemption, for free salvation, for grace and mercy. That's its purpose. And I propose to you today that James isn't trying to make Christians perfect here. He's trying to show us how imperfect we are and explain why we're so imperfect. And it is a powerful lesson. Today's text, James 1, 9 through 18, let me use this as an example of what I'm talking about. He says, believers who are poor 
have something to boast about, for God has honored them. In other words, he's saying, yeah, you may be poor, and you're frustrated in your poverty, and you're mad at rich people. Well, I might be mad at rich people too, but the answer to your problem is not more money. The answer to your problem is that you understand that God has honored you. You see, a poor Christian who's mad at wealthy people is divided in their loyalty between God and the world. You see, that's the problem that we ignore. If you are dirt poor and you know Christians that are wealthy beyond belief and you are frustrated that they don't share your wealth with you, then you in this text are being told your eyes are not where they should be because your wealth is from God. And he doesn't stop there. Verse 10, and those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. In other words, you rich people, you are divided because you think you're comfortable and safe. I'm telling you, you should boast in your humility. You should boast in your need for salvation. You should boast in the fact that God reached down and saved some sad human existence like you because he loves you. They, now this they here, the Greek tells us, is specifically speaking of their wealth. They will fade away like a flower in the field. The hot sun rises and the grass withers. The flower drops and and falls and the beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich person now, the rich person who doesn't know God will fade fade away with all of their achievements. So he's telling the poor person in today's text that you need to find your pride in God. You need to be completely devoted to his plan for life, even if it means poverty for you. For the rich person, he says, you need to realize how humble you are and how needy you are by God. You you think that your self-sustenance is keeping you afloat. It's not. God's blood and his righteousness and what he's done for you has. Find your humility in your humble spiritual position. So for the rich or the poor, the, the solution is the same. Do not be divided by your affection for this world and its comforts and this life. Rich man and woman, let your humility and undivided attention be in God, for your wealth will fade, and those who put their hope and focus on their wealth will fade away with their wealth. Verse 12, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. This isn't a threat, it's a promise. So for both of you, rich and poor, you should put your, you should put your focus not on what you can buy with your wealth, or what you can't buy because somebody's keeping wealth from you, if that's what you think. But you should place your emphasis and your life in the hands of God who promised that one day he will give you a crown of life. His promises, even in trouble. Put your hope in God and his kingdom and his wealth. Do not expect more from this life than it will or can even offer you. Don't be divided in your affections, even in how we perceive temptation. And remember, verse 13 says, when you are being tempted, don't say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Verse 14, temptation comes from our own desires. This is huge. Even the flesh of a believer struggles. There are those that the Church of Wells teaches. Heresy. Um, By the way, the Church of Wells, about 95% of their teaching is in full alignment with a legalistic assembly of God, Pentecostal or Baptist church, just so you know. So next time you're yelling at them, remember we've done the same. But their doctrine gets heretical in that they believe that the child of God never sins. That's exactly the opposite of what he's teaching right here. When you're tempted, 
Even when you give in to sin, it's your flesh that's drawing you. Does that not perfectly connect with Romans 7 where Paul says it's not me doing it, but the sin within me? I mean, do you ever wonder, do you ever get frustrated with your flesh? Why am I drawn to this thing that I've run from for so long? Will I ever be free of this body of sin? And the answer is yes. When? When I'm dead. When I'm with Jesus Christ. That's how Paul sent it. Remember the end of Romans 7, Paul says, who's going to save me from this body of death? And he's frustrated. And he says, what's the answer? Jesus Christ. You see, we, um, we have, uh, we, in, in, in the way that, that, salvation is talked about, and we, we try to reach the lost, and, and I get all that. We, we are so busy telling people to come to Jesus, he'll take your sin away, but then after we don't take time to learn what it means to walk with God and what the Christian life looks like and the battle that it is, this is a spiritual battle we're in. It is a real spiritual battle, and it's not going to go away until we're dead, until we're with the Lord. Salvation has three steps to it. Did you know that? Salvation, the moment of salvation is called justification. You are declared right with God. In your sin, in your flesh, you're declared right. It is an absolute, it's called imputed righteousness. You are as pure as Jesus Christ when you stand before him at that moment. The problem is we live out our life in our flesh. Romans 5 talks about why we have to die, and the reason is is because our flesh is condemned still. And we struggle with our flesh every day. And the process of battling our flesh is called sanctification. That's the second phase of our salvation. That thing is what we battle with. This is what James is talking about. Please understand the blindness in your life so that you can have victory in your spiritual life. You know, Christians ask all the time, in my life anyway, Christians ask, I've been walking with God for years. We just sang songs about the joy of the Lord and the peace of the Lord, but why don't I feel that? This answered it for us in last week's text because our affections are divided. We want everything God offers plus everything the world offers. You can't have it all. It's impossible. It is crazy. Many of us were saved at VBS when we were little kids. But for those of you who were saved as adults, you have a distinct advantage over us. And that is you know the sting of feeding your flesh. And for those of us who are saved at a young age, we just sort of think we can have it all. And you know we can't have it all. Talk to a recovering drug addict who's a believer. Talk to somebody who spent years in jail that's a believer. They run from sin easier than we do because the church has kind of taught us how as long as I don't have sex before marriage, I'm really okay. There was very little talk, even when I was a youth pastor, about what that means to your heart and walking with God. A couple things that that Jeff has been teaching the kids lately that you need to be aware of. Number one, sex is awesome within the way God created it. And it is a natural desire to desire sexual relations with someone. That's natural. But Satan takes what God has given us and he twists it with a lie and he uses it to destroy us. Is that not what he did in the Garden of Eden? With the fruit of the tree of life and the knowledge of good and evil, he took the truth of the beauty of that tree that God created and the lessons that I want to keep you protected from the knowledge of good and evil, and he made it look desirable. And Eve, instead of saying God told us not to, or Adam who's standing next to us didn't stand up to his wife and say, stop, we're not doing this. Instead, they longed for that fruit and the secret things that God were keeping from them. Humanity, even Christian humanity, has always struggled. Take Cain and Abel. Cain did the same thing. He went to the right God, right location, right altar. He just did one thing wrong, wrong sacrifice. We always are drawn to, to, to take both what we want, what makes us feel good, and what God is doing in the world. That's what he's talking about here, a divided affection. And the problem is it is natural to feed your flesh. 
which is why we are called new creations in Christ. That's why the Holy Spirit comes in. That's why legalism doesn't work. I grew up in a church that taught me I couldn't play cards. And they could teach me in Sunday school why each card was a slam on the name of Jesus Christ. It was insane, the level of our legalism. But you know, you could play with other cards as long as they didn't have face cards. Or we were told movies were never allowed, but we all went to movies as long as we went 30 minutes out of town. People in this town, when I moved here, this used to be a moist town. It was never a dry town. This was a moist town. You could go into Applebee's and for $2 you could drink in a dry county. That's Bible Belt thinking there, I'll tell you what. That's okay. But in this town, churches have creeds. You know the creeds on the wall that you read every year at the annual business meeting? I've been in churches with them. And one of the things on there for whatever reason is we will not drink. And yet the deacons in those churches would have drinks in their house. That's called hypocrisy. Pastors who teach that, if they go to a wedding, they'll, 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 you know, they'll do champagne as long as it's out of town. And maybe for those of you who go, well, I know the pastor who taught that to me, and he never would. Well, did he drink NyQuil? Because that's like 80 proof right there. You could put that on, you could put that on bananas, light it on fire, and call it Bananas Foster. The fact is, legalism never satisfied. You have to get deeper legalistic. If your holiness and your righteousness is upon you, you'll never measure up. And the problem is that even in Christian circles, even in Christendom, even in Judaism, the problem with the Jews is, if you read the New Testament, is listen to Paul writing to the church of Galatia. Our heart, our flesh is drugged back, not just to sinfulness, but to self-righteousness. You see, we keep thinking and we keep playing what, we, what Satan wants us to play. We keep thinking that Satan's best attacks are done with sin. Well, you know what? I actually think inside the walls of the church, Satan's best work is done with self-righteousness, which is why James is such a difficult verse for a person who wants to walk with God. Because you look at James and you go, I can't measure up, which is the point of why he's laying this thing out, to say, you're this person. So what do you want me to do about it, James? You know what I want you to do about it? I want you to realize that you have a divided affection. I want you to realize that. Well, what do you want me to do? We'll talk about that in a few minutes. James addresses all of these issues while trying to tackle the big one. Now let me go to Palm Sunday. Matthew chapter 21. Some of you are thinking there is no way you can get a Palm Sunday message out of this. I'm a highly trained professional. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two of them ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you're doing, just say the Lord needs them, and he'll immediately take you to them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, Tell the people of Jerusalem, Look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of them, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David! Blessings in the one, is the one 
Uh, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in his highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. It was a good day, right? Not really. Because five days later, this very same crowd is screening him and crucify him. Kill him. We have no king but Caesar. Within a week, the one they are calling their king and their prophet here on Palm Sunday, they're going to kill. They're not just going to reject him. There's going to be so much hate in their Jewish blood that they're going to kill him. And this was not the first time the Jews wanted Jesus to be their king. Actually, a reading of the Gospels tells you that after he fed the 5,000 plus women and children, that they began to clamor together to make him their king, so much so that it says that Jesus had to sneak away or they would have forced him. There are three or four other places in the Gospels where the rumorings, the people are calling for him to be their king, and he sneaks away. It tells us that the crowds gathered around him so much inside of the cities that he stopped going into preaching in the cities. He couldn't even go into the synagogue, so he stayed out. Why? Because they wanted him to be their king. And you could be asking, well, on the triumphal entry, the Palm Sunday, that's what he presented himself as. So why is that a problem? Because what they wanted as a king was not what he was offering. You see, when you say, you're going to be my king, you're my lord, you're my ruler, you're basically saying, do what you want. I believe in your core values. That's not what the Jews were saying. The Jews were saying, give us food, give us health care, and by the way, while you're at it, overthrow Rome and take rulership of the world. We are Jews, after all. We deserve the best that the world has to offer. We should be ruling those Gentile dogs, not them ruling us. And when they found out within 48 hours that Jesus Christ did not come to set up his kingdom on earth, that this was not time to take the seat of David, instead of saying, Jesus, what are you here for? Instead of saying, we're sorry, we misunderstood, they said, kill him. Which I would argue is what the church does today. You see, the message of Jesus Christ and grace and mercy is grace and mercy for homosexuals and alcoholics and drug addicts. The church should be full of people like that. Actually, I'd like to say, that I'm in a unique position to say the church is full of people like that. But we make them dress up so that they don't appear to be what they are because we won't accept them as they are. You see, the church is more critical of people and judgmental than even God himself. You see, what God did by sending Jesus Christ to the earth is he came to the earth not to make us moral, but to make us holy. He came to the earth to redeem the immoral. He didn't come to save those who think they're righteous, but he came to save those who knew they were desperately in need of help. That's why this letter constantly says, why, are you, why is your tongue, how can you worship, and you know this, we're going to get into this text in a few weeks, but how out of the same mouth can blessings for God come and curses? You know why? Because your affections are divided between God and the world. If your affections were completely in God's realm, you understand that he may be doing things around you you don't understand. But because we think we deserve a king who gives us health care, food, and respect, we boycott Target because they choose to say Happy Holidays instead of Merry Christmas. Because we think we deserve to live in a country that's Christian, we demand that Starbucks put cups with little snowflakes and Santa Clauses on them. And if they don't, we get on the Internet and we get mad about it. Why? Because this is our country. Wow. We put signs in our yard that says Jesus for President. Seriously? What if he doesn't want to be president? What if he doesn't want to be king? 
What if he wants to save humanity, and the reason he hasn't come back and fixed this is because he's being patient to save everyone that he's calling? Is that not what Peter says? What if the reason the church gets angry politically because we're thinking we're losing based upon our own definition of losing? It sounds to me like we have a divided affection. We want eternal life with the only king of kings, but we also want him to give us a good life here. What if he doesn't want you to have a good life? What if you're supposed to pick up your cross, follow him, and die? That's Jesus' teaching, and that's for, that's for student camps. What if this really is a spiritual war? Well, yeah, I know it's a spiritual war, but that's really for student ministry. We dress them up in fatigues, and we send them to preteen camp, and we, we, we mimic the war, and we tell them, fight for God. But as adults, we really understand that it's all in our hands. What if who's going to be president next year has nothing to do with who you vote for? What if God's got a plan that's prophetically going to be fulfilled in the future, no matter who gets to the position of president? What if he really is in control? Yeah, but I just can't stand the way it's going. What if God uniquely called you to poverty? What if he called you to be wealthy? What if he doesn't remove your temptation for that particular sin? Let me talk to you about homosexuality for a second. What if no matter what you think, what if homosexuality is actually a way, because of context and culture, a person is bent? And what if it isn't just a decision a person makes one afternoon in their bedroom? What if they actually are drawn towards that? What if a person actually is drawn to dating younger women? What's the church going to do? Do we burn them at the stake? Actually, this week, a guy introduced Ted Cruz, and he said, we all know that homosexuals should be killed. Do we know that? Yes, he did. Do we know that? Google it right before he introduced Ted Cruz. Is that what the church thinks? Or does the church still believe that Jesus Christ is patiently enduring sinners like Baptists and Assembly of God members who are self-righteous? so that we have a moment in time where we can read a book like this and go, I just realized the reason I'm mad about having bad service at Sears is because I forgot that that is an individual who needs Jesus Christ as well. What if the reason that we're mad at the Democrats or the Republicans is because we believe they're the ones screwing up society when we're the ones doing it? In case you're not clear, the reason the world is in trouble is because Jesus Christ has been rejected. Read Romans 1. We've replaced God with, with, with evolution. Or what, I don't want to go into that. We have cre we replaced the worship of God with the worship of self. You can call it republicanism with wealth, and you have the right to do anything you want, or you can call it Democrat in this need to take care of everybody. Whatever side of the pole you're on, when we get mad, it shows that we are not in trusting of God. Because last time I checked, according to Galatians, Anger is not a fruit of the Spirit. Well, what about Jesus? Right after Palm Sunday, he went into the temple and he turned the tables over. That's because the religious leaders were selling stuff they should have given away from free. And by the way, he does come after people like me who don't speak truth. He does. He actually warned us that it would be better for a millstone to be put around our neck and dropped in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea than to preach a false doctrine that causes his little ones, his sheep, to be tempted. That wasn't about the people. It wasn't about the gay Roman men in Roman baths. It wasn't about, it wasn't about the drunkenness that it, you know, was in that culture. It was about the religious Jewish leaders that were told to make way the Messiah and rejected the Messiah. What if this book of James was actually about divided hearts and not learning to control our tongues? 
What if the reason we can't control our tongues is because our heart doesn't belong to the Lord? I mean, it sort of does, but only in terms of eternal life. Well, I deserve, what do you deserve? What do you deserve? What do you deserve? What have you been given the right to? If you don't think surrendering it all to God is the way to go, then walk away. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, choose this day who you're going to serve. In fact, if you're going to come after me, pick up your cross. You're going to die. And the Jews back then that he's writing to had the same problem as the unsaved Jews that reject Jesus on the triumphal entry. They wanted all that God had to offer as long as he gave them what they wanted. And the minute he doesn't give us what we want, we get mad. And he's saying, James 4, 7 through 8, humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. What does it mean to resist the devil, Pastor? What does that mean? You're thinking too hard. You know what resist means? It's what you do, I don't know. I have five examples, but all of them are going to offend a group of this, somebody else, somebody. So i got to be careful. Resist. means walk away. doesn't mean take him on. It, it, doesn't mean, it doesn't mean figure out how to pray against him. I mean, that's one of the other mistakes in the church. If Satan keeps you fighting with him, at war with him, guess where your eyes are not? On Jesus. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Just a side note on spiritual warfare that's happening around us in our minds, which is where it takes place. If every time you were tempted to look at porn or to get mad and badmouth your husband to somebody or whatever it is you do, if every time you did that you got on your knees and you asked God to help you overcome that, I assure you Satan will try a new tactic the next day. Because if Satan's tactics begin driving you to God, he's going to have to find a new path. But here's what the church does. The church wants you to fight that problem. And if I can teach you five steps to overcoming your anger towards rich people, who are your eyes on at the end of that message? You. You couldn't save yourself in the first place. What means, makes you think you can save yourself now? Because God did my eternity. Now I have to do my life. That is satanic. God does not help those who help themselves. God helped those who desperately seek him. And that's what James is about. James is telling us not to have a divided heart. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come close to God and he will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Does your reaction to others or to God, to life's twists and turns, does your reaction say that you are totally surrendered to what God is doing in the world? Or are you divided in your loyalty between the God and the world? This is a great for us to, a week for us to evaluate where we are because it's Palm Sunday. This is the Sunday when everybody did. We would have been so comfortable in that crowd. Hail the king of the Jews. Look at the Jews are turning to Jesus. No, they're not. Give them a couple days. We all, we all can go to a Christian concert and high-five each other. Some of us will want to go here. Gothard reunion. Gaither reunion. I said Gothard. Gaither reunion. Some of us will want to go to a passion conference or maybe Young Messiah or whatever you like to listen to. And you go and you go, man, I felt so close to God. Your emotions were being turned up. If you want to know it's true, what do you do on the way home? You can go to church and have a great morning, and then you go to, 
I don't know, chilies and you have bad service. Bam, it's gone. Why? Because this isn't about emotion. Not even good emotion. This is about absolute 100% surrender, trusting God even in your trials, tribulations, and poverty. Trusting God saying, if this is what you have for me, I'm going with it. Instead of sitting around and trying to change it, whether politically or otherwise, vote but go home, take your family out to dinner, celebrate that you won't have to watch another stupid political commercial until six months later. Sorry, that's when it starts on Congress again. You realize that everybody's sliding the truth. In order to win, it's all about winning for them. For us, it's about walking with God, trusting Him. And that's the problem that we still face because even from our pulpits today, I got a call this week from a group of people that are doing a survey, some Christian organization. They wouldn't tell me who, but they wanted to know our view on certain things, political and as a church, how politically active we are. And they asked if we had flag in the sanctuary. I said, absolutely not. Well, why not? Because it ain't America in here. This is not the United States of America. You are welcome here if you're a communist. You're crazy, but you're welcome. You're welcome here if you're a Republican, even if you're part of the establishment. You're welcome here if you are a socialist. A couple weeks ago, somebody was wearing a, a Bernie Sanders shirt in Sunday morning. And it's been three weeks, so I can tell you unequivocally that I did see your shirt and I giggled. I'm not looking at that person because they know what I'm talking about. But the, the, the fact is that godly people, God does not have a political agenda for this country. He has a spiritual agenda for this country. And you know what? Dietrich Bonhoeffer's testimony is a result of fighting in a, in a, a Nazi Germany. People were saved as a result of this man's testimony. Imagine how effective he could have been if he wasn't in Nazi Germany. None of us would know his name if it wasn't for Nazi Germany. What if they come to America and start cutting our heads off? I will fight to the death. Knock yourself out. But that doesn't mean that that's God's will. How do I know God's will? You're going to have to walk with them. You're going to have to say whatever you want. It's a great week for us to evaluate our loyalty based upon our reaction to life and trouble and those who, those who offend us and those who we like. Where is our loyalty? If it's divided, you'll be miserable. There's never enough. This life can never give you enough money to make you happy. You know that now. The church will never be able to do enough cool stuff to make you feel peace. Your time alone in the Word will not make you have peace. It's it's the Word of God and the Holy Spirit and walking with Him every moment of every day. There's not enough morality. Every time you are living a moral life, somebody's going to show you one more time where you're not. Why? Because legalists have to make themselves good, feel good by tearing you down. I can't tell you the number of pastors that have told me that are legalists at heart and that preach a message they themselves can't live. And when confronted with that, they go, well, I'm just hoping I get into heaven. But at least I can keep my flock knowing the truth. What? Pastors struggle with lust and adultery and homosexuality. I was with my brother at a conference a few years back. A psych, a, a, it was a, a, a pastor's conference. And my brother, as you know, is a Christian psychologist, works with lots of folks. And uh, we were sitting there, and there was this preacher up there. And I, his name doesn't matter, but he was well-known, and he was preaching against adultery. Bam, 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 bam. The number one scourge of the church is sexual immorality and blah, blah, blah. And my brother leaned over to me and he said, within a month you're going to find out he's been having an affair. Bam, he was right. 
Remember the guy who was in Colorado who was like national conservative leadership counselor or something? Big mega church in Colorado. I don't even remember his name. doesn't matter. Every week preached against homosexuality. Came out. He'd been flying to Denver and getting together with male prostitutes. You know why? Because it's not about being moral. It's about knowing God and having him transform you from the inside out. It makes a difference. It produces good deeds. But you don't, you don't become righteous because you act it. They, you know, this, this health food movement is, is really disturbing. I'm, I'm scared to death that Mars is actually going to get invested in taking crickets and covering them with weak chocolate, dark chocolate. You know, you can go into Academy and you can buy ants covered in dark chocolate. First of all, dark chocolate is horrible. To make it taste good, you've got to pour sugar on it. Diet Coke's the same way. You just have to pour a little sugar in it. It tastes really good. I'm just kidding. I, I know that I'm getting in areas, and you can disagree with me if you have no taste buds. But I'm scared to death that we're going to all of a sudden decide that we should all be eating crickets. I don't want to live that long. If it extends my life a year, eat a hamburger and die early, you know? The, the fact is... The city of Chicago and Michigan, that town, was being told all the time that their water was healthy. And you know they believed it. But it's not keeping people from dying. What you believe, what you feel, does not make things true. Truth exists. And the truth of this letter is, look at all the stuff you're doing. You need to back away from that. So I advise you to quit being divided. Sell your soul to God, Christians. Now, if you're unsaved, this isn't for you. You just need to accept his gift to forgive you, and the Holy Spirit will come in, and then we'll talk about him transforming you. But I am not telling you this morning, and I, I'm wrapping up now, I am not telling you right now that I want you to this week decide this or that or change this or that. What I want you to do is I want you to ask God to help. I want you to ask him to open your eyes. A week before the Passover meal, which is really where we're at, seven days out from Passover meal, the family would, would, would take that week and they would do house cleaning. We actually got the idea of spring cleaning from this. But the idea is every day for seven days you would go through your house and you would try to remove the yeast. You would look in every cabinet, on every floor. You would sweep it out. You would look in every corner because yeast was the picture of sin. So a week before Passover, you would do everything in your power to, to repent of yeast. That's how you prepared for the Passover meal. As Christians, your soul is pure and holy. Colossians chapter 1, 21. You stand before him pure and holy. But as a Christian, you have an opportunity this week to see where the yeast lives. Look at the fruit. Ask yourself, where am I? Am I serious? I know I'm saved, but am I seriously invested? Why am I miserable and yet a child of God when promised peace? Maybe it's because our affections are divided. And here is the application, and I want to be real clear on this. The application is not get rid of your wealth or, or love a rich person. <laughs> That's not the application of this. The application of this is go to God and tell him where you're weak. I'm struggling here, God. I really, really like my health, but you're taking it from me, and I'm struggling. That's how you talk to God. You can ask him for your health. Give, heal me but not my will, yours be done. And help me to be okay with your will. 
You may be here this morning and you're struggling with political stuff. God, I can't, I can't believe that my country is going down. I love this country. Please save our country, but not my will, yours be done. Boy, that's a very different prayer, isn't it? Whatever it is you're struggling with, not my will, yours be done. That's the prayer of an undivided heart. It's the prayer of Jesus in the garden. Father, take this cup for me. I don't even like these people. They're snoring. I can't even have to speak louder because they're snoring over there. But if you want me to die for them, okay. Amen. How serious are we? Are we willing, having responded He gave His Son for you and I. Are we willing to give our lives for Him? That's what it looks like to have an undivided heart. You can pray your will be done, but you have to end it with your will is more important than mine, and I know that. That's what James is trying to address in this letter. Verse by verse, section by section. So at some point in the middle we go, God is demanding too much. And we can respond with, God isn't demanding anything. He just wants your faith to produce amazing things for him. But to do that, you've got to stop trying. Lord Jesus, a lot of words said, a lot of songs sung, a lot of confusion maybe, but your Holy Spirit can make it clear and take away the stuff that I said that was wrong. We're all in this together, Father. We are all in this together. And I pray that as we walk towards Good Friday, We would take time this week to look for yeast in our lives. Look for those areas that we are divided in our affections. And I thank you that even if we don't, you won't stop loving us and chasing us. So chase away. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Bible study is going to start in about uh, 10 minutes.